alaikum. This is Dr. Amina Aldean for Maidan Podcast and also for the Black American Muslim Internationalism Project, which Maidan is hosting. I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Abdullah bin Hamid Ali, who is an associate professor of Islamic law and prophetic tradition at Zaytuna College in Berkeley, California. I'm envious of how warm it must be. And he's been there since 2007, short time. His courses include prophetic tradition, commercial law, family law, inheritance law, jurisprudential principles, and Islamic virtue ethics. I have no doubt that that list will increase as his tenure goes on. Um, Where do I want to start? I would like to start with growing up Muslim. (laughs) I happen to know that your parents were Muslim, but talk about growing up Muslim in Philadelphia for our audience. Well, I think uh, a good place to begin to talk about growing up Muslims is, I guess you would say, my birth. I actually was born in Philadelphia, and then shortly after that, our family moved to Chicago. So I spent the first 10, almost 11 years of my life in Chicago. And then after that, we returned to Philadelphia uh, in 1984. And... um, my mother and father originally were Christian, naturally, you know, and they converted to, to Islam through the uh, Nation of Islam. They're followers of Elijah Muhammad and to, you know, as we know, this, the first resurrection. And then upon his death and once the, uh, the mantle, the, the leadership had been transferred to his son, Imam Din Muhammad, may Allah be pleased with him, um, they followed him. Right uh, Now, Growing up, um, now I was born just a few years before the death of Elijah Muhammad. So um, growing up as a Muslim was, I guess you'd say, a bit, um, not necessarily strange, but it's not, it wasn't typical of what you would imagine a Muslim household to be in the sense that the only person in my household who actually made Salat was my father. Um, and no one else, my mother, uh, none of my other siblings, uh, but also we weren't asked to pray. We, we weren't, you know, we just sort of observed at certain times of the day that my father said, everybody should be quiet. He's going to go in the room and he prayed. And now, of course, I attributed, th- attribute this to just simply the fact that he is making this transition into Sunni Islam. Um, and perhaps they felt, um, a bit, uh, uneasy about sort of imposing a new belief system on the children. I don't know. I never actually asked my parents, uh, like, why that was the case. But um, growing up, the only thing that I knew as a Muslim was that, of course, we were not supposed to eat pork. We knew Assalamu alaikum. Fridays, sometimes we would go to the temple and sort of mix with the, with the people there. But outside of that, I, I'd never seen a Quran. I'd never seen an actual Quran until... Uh, we moved back to Philadelphia in the 80s, early 80s, and I met a Sunni Muslim family in Philadelphia. Uh, and it so happened the way that I met them was I was part of a breakdance group. All of my friends, they were they're non-Muslims. And so we would go around the neighborhood and we would battle. We would challenge people to battles, right? So th- on this particular day, I had, you know, I was with my group, with my crew. And so we, we came across these Muslim guys and we say, hey, we want to battle. Uh, somehow word it reached their mother's ear that I was Muslim. I, I can't remember how that happened, but they found that I was Muslim. And while we were there, she invited me in the house. So when I came inside, I saw them performing Salah. Now, around this time, my, my parents had already broken up. It, you know, they were on a separate raise. They were, they were divorcing. And so when I saw them performing Salah, I said uh, automatically, I said, oh, that's what my father used to do, right? So it really attracted me to that house, you know, so, and, they, and they live very, very close to us. They're about just right around the corner, right? So I started to go around there and then eventually started to study 
the basics of Islam along with a few of my siblings at the time, right? So, um, so in other words, um, while my parents are Muslims or were Muslim, I can't say that I really grew up in a Muslim household, at least not, you know, um, religiously, right? In the sense that you, one might expect one to, to one to do so. And, and, and in a lot of ways, we really just grew up in the same way that most American children grew up. You know, we would travel to Philadelphia from Chicago pretty much every Christmas to my aunt's house. My aunt, she was well-to-do, well-off. She would buy everybody in the family gifts. And so we'd drive there, spend time. This is my father's uh, sister, you know. So we would, you know, travel there every year. We'd get our gifts, and, you know. So we all watched all the normal things that kids our age was watch on TV and Charlie Brown, Christmas, and we were all the red, red nosed reindeers, frothy, frothy the snowman. We knew the Christmas carols, all those things like that, right? But we just were Muslim, right? <laughs> we just happened to be Muslim. So um, the transition into Muslim life, you know, it was in different phases. It took some time before I actually, I guess you would say, that I embraced my Muslimness or I, I actually decided that I wanted, wanted this to be part of my life, right? So. I'm still trying to imagine you break dancing. Yeah, you think that's something, they break dance something. Imagine me rapping. Oh my God, <laughs> I love it, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What inspired, what encouraged, what pushed you toward the scholarly life? Because you are indeed one of our community treasures. And I don't know, I mean, uh, it was because I was determined to listen to you that I found out what WhatsApp was and downloaded the app. Uh, you know, all those years ago, since I got on there, of course, contacted you like you would remember me. But what inspired you? What encouraged What were high school and uh, young adulthood like for you? Well, I say with two things inspired my desire for scholarship. The first thing I would say was getting a lot of different answers, right? That were they were they were at loggerheads of one another. Like for for one for for instance, I remember we used to go to Juma, and then people used to tell us that hey, that there's these, these scholars and these imams who say that if you go to Juma, that you have to pray Dhuhr as well, right? You have to pray four rakats of Dhuhr. And then, so we would do that. We'd go to Jum'an Friday and we'd come home, we'd pray Dhuhr as well. Right. Then, like, maybe four or five months later, then someone someone else would pop up and say, hey, no, actually, if you go to Jum'an, you don't have to pray Dhuhr. Right. So then we transitioned to that. Right. And then a few months later, we were back to the other opinion. Right? Just the one, was one example. And there are other examples of this, you know, but that's probably the most prominent example I can think of. And I, I, I felt at the time that, you know, this is not really a good feeling, right? This idea of being like a leaf in the wind that people, you're at the other people's mercy, right? And, and, and so I felt that I needed to learn on my own. The second thing I would say inspired me was the very first time I saw an all Arabic Quran. I was just really mesmerized by the idea that those little symbols actually meant something. So, and I was like, just amazed. It's like, that's, that's the Quran right there. You know, I, I didn't know. I, I, and I wanted to learn it. I wanted to know what it said. At the time, somehow I come into possession of a book called Easy Tajweed. And at the beginning of that book, uh, they had a section with the Arabic alphabet. Right. So I actually started to try to teach myself the Arabic alphabet. You know, I would write out each alphabet 15 times and try to memorize it you know, get, get acquainted with the, the actual letters. And, th and the thing that's so amazing was that about two weeks later, after I started that process, uh, someone had come to me and told me that there was a local teacher who was about to start an Arabic class at the Sister Clara Muhammad School, right? He was a, a man from Eritrea, who they known as Imam Abarra. He wasn't an imam, but that was his first name, Imam Abarra. May Allah have mercy on him. And he was from Eritrea. He, he studied in Egypt. He learned Arabic. You know, and so a lot of the people in Philadelphia have actually they knew him, you know, when he was alive. And he he would travel all across the city. If you if you're interested in learning Arabic, he would charge five dollars an hour 
and he would come from any part of the city to where you were in your home. That was my kid's first teacher too. Yeah. Right. MashaAllah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So he started, he, he was teaching at Sister Claire Muhammad two nights, two, two nights a week. And I started to, to study with him right that way. Right? So this is what was obviously my entry into scholarship was from that point. So those two events, I would say the uh, two issues are what sort of led me into the desire to go deeper into um, my knowledge and understanding of Islam. So keep on with the story. This is you. <laughs> right. So, so, so I studied with them. We spent about, I guess you'd say a year together studying and I learned quite a bit from him. You know, his English wasn't that good, but uh, yeah, I just still learned a lot of Arabic from him, you know, so he wasn't focusing on speaking. Right. So I was able to understand a lot of the grammar, the grammar, uh, but, because of the language barrier, he really wasn't able to take me any further, right? Uh, often I found my times, I would ask him questions, he really couldn't explain to me certain things because of his, his English was, wasn't as, as good as it could have been. And around that same time, Imam Anwar, Sheikh Anwar Mohammed had been taken over. He, started, he took over for his father. His father went into semi-retirement and he turned over the operations of what was formerly known as the International Muslim Brotherhood and to the Kuba Institute of Islamic, Arabic Islamic Studies, right? So he had started, uh, they decided that this is no longer a masjid, this is a school. And they introduced a new Arabic program, right? And a new sort of style of, of learning that which they were broadcasting as a new way of learning Arabic. And so I joined that program and I abandoned my first Arabic teacher and I started to study with them. Uh, but it was, I was already familiar with them. I had already been familiar with the masjid. I had been attending the masjid for some time. And as a matter of fact, when I was about 15 years old, I was studying some of the very basics of Islam with their father, Sheikh Nafi'ah. So it was an easy transition. It's, it's why I already like them. I'm already familiar with them. And now they have this Arabic program, and I want to go further with my Arabic. So I started to study with them. Now, I didn't limit myself. That's another thing as well. I didn't limit, limit myself to any curriculum that I came about, came across. I was very passionate about learning Arabic. So any book that I can find, you know, I would, I would pick it up and try to study it. Kaplowatsky, you probably studied, you probably heard of that, the old Kaplowatsky book, very one volume Arabic book that a lot of people from your generation, I know that they studied it. Uh, that was one of the first books I came across. Uh, I went through uh, other curriculum, and one of them was the elementary modern standard Arabic curriculum, which was taught in most uh, U.S. Uh, universities. You know, I came across that, and I had a private teacher. As a matter of fact, my brother Abdul Hakim Muhammad, who actually was attending University of Pennsylvania around the same time that Dr. Jackson was. You know, but Abdul Hakim never never finished. You know, but I studied. I was studying it with him. I studied with. I was actually reviewing some things from the same book from a couple of other people that I had come across as well. I I would sit at home. I would wake up in the morning around uh, you know nine o'clock in the morning. Especially, I mean, of course, when I'm not at school, once I finish, you know, and and I would just stay in my room, lock myself in my room until like from nine to one or two o'clock. I'm looking through these books and trying to learn as much as I can, right? So, so it's a major focus on Arabic and also a focus on the Quran. I'm listening to a lot of Quran reciters. Um, I'm trying to read and follow them in the Quran as they're reciting, right? You know, and this is also before I found my Quran teacher, like Sheikh Anwar and, and his brother Anas Mohammed. Both of them, you know, were my Quran teachers. But I learned more from uh, Seth Anas uh, from, with respect to the Quran, uh, and, and Sheikh Anwar with respect to Arabic and other things as well. Right. So, so yes, yeah, so I was really, really passionate about really wanting to know. Uh, what Allah says and what the messenger said and what, you know, the scholars, uh, the commentators, you know, the exegetes, you know, what were they saying about these things? I was just, I just really wanted to know. And I just didn't like the idea that I always had to rely upon someone else to tell me what the Quran or the Sunnah says. I am being the leaf that you talked about. Right. Blown down the street, whichever way. Right. Mm -hmm. So when did you meet Khaled Blankenship? Oh, yeah. So that's an interesting story, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so I so I continued my studies by 1993. 
I get the opportunity to perform Hajj, right? So I'm the youngest person in the group. We go over to Mecca. A lot of people have been pushing me to go overseas to study, right? But I never really had that interest. Yeah. I really, when I started studying, I didn't say, I want to become a scholar, right? That I just want to know, right? What, what the book says. But a lot of people are pushing me in that direction, right? Go overseas, go to Medina, go to Egypt, go here, go there, you know? And I would say, okay, I say, I'm not interested at first. And then after a while, I say, okay, I'll, okay, I'll do that. You know, so where should I go? Some people go here. And then after a week or two weeks, they say, oh, you shouldn't go there. You should go here. You know, so I'm just like, listen, I'm going to go wherever you want me to go. I'm getting, I'm like a leaf in the wind once again. Right. So, and so eventually what happened was that things didn't really pan out. So this is, of course, post 1993, post my Hajj visit which really opened up a lot of things for me. The first time outside of the country, first time on the airplane, right? And, and so on a very spiritual journey for me, right? So around 1995, once I had decided that uh, I was no longer going to pursue the path of, of scholarship in Islam, I decided to go to Temple University and I signed up I, and, and majored in computer science, right? That was my major, right? Because I was sort of turned off by all of the advice I was receiving, which I, at that point, I decided was bad advice. And I was like, well, it was all their idea anyway. It wasn't my idea, right? You know, so so I just decided at that point that if anything I do in the future is going to be because I want to do it, not because someone else told me that this is a good thing to do, right? So that way I couldn't blame them if things didn't go right, right? I, was, I could just blame, blame myself, right? So, so, and actually, prior to going to Temple, well, before the decision to go to the temple, there are some brothers who got together who raised money for a one-way ticket to Azhar University. Right. So I was I said, I'm gonna to go to Azhar University. And my plan was to get off the airplane, get on the taxi, have them deliver me to the university. I was gonna knock on the door and say, I'm here, I want to study. Right. That was it. Right? I had a one-way ticket, right? Um, and um, but of course, alhamdulillah, it, it didn't work out. And, you know, the brothers were trying to discourage me from going. And then I got a bit uh, bitter about that. But after that, my bitterness led me to say, I'm going to just go to college, get me a good job and get married and make some money. That was about it. So I ended up at Temple, 1995, uh, focused on my computer science studies. I'm doing pretty well first year. And then eventually I discovered the Arabic sec- section of the of the library. Right. So once I see the books that are there, they become a, a major distraction for me. So instead of me going to the library to study computer science, I found myself looking at these Arabic books uh, more often. And so what happened is I started to, I started to um, sort of fall behind. I started to fall behind. Now at Temple, in addition to me majoring in computer science, I was, I was taking a minor like Arabic and things like that too. So I, I was taking the Arabic course. It was more independent study more than anything else you know, um, translation projects that the, the, the instructor was given to me. Uh, and then eventually I had uh, come across that the Khaled Bankership, where I'd met before and prior to me going to Temple University, and uh, I decided to take a couple of his lectures and his graduate lectures, right? One was uh, Islamic study, Introduction to Islam. Another was Introduction to Islamic Jurisprudence. And then I started to spend some time with him in his office, and we would read books together. Right. You know, and, and I mentioned in my bio on my website that, you know, that one uh, one of the books that we're studying was the Sirah of Ibn Ishaq. And then the other was a Maliki uh, law manual, right, written by a scholar known as Nafrawi. And, and so that's fundamentally how I became involved with Dr. Khalid. And then eventually, after about two years, after two years of studying their temple, uh, I decided that um that I had a knack for what I was doing. I had a knack for Arabic. Uh, it was something that's coming relatively easy for me, as well as Islamic studies. I still want to know more about my religion. Then I decided that perhaps it was time to go overseas. Now, now it's my decision. It's not his decision or anyone else's decision. My decision to go overseas. But I don't really know where I should go. So I actually go and ask that the party what he thought about this. And to an extent, he somewhat tried to discourage me at first. I guess he just wanted to see how serious I was about the idea because he was familiar with the earlier attempt to go overseas. But he, he, it was his idea to go to Morocco and to study at Qarabiyin. He said that we don't know anyone who studied there. You know, it's the oldest university in the Muslim world that we are familiar with. 
And he had some connections as well, that he had been invited to Morocco on a few occasions before that by the king of Morocco, you know, because King Hassan Thani, who was the prior king, the, 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 the father of the current king. So he, the King Hassan would have in Ramadan these lessons, special lessons uh, called Ad-Durus al-Hassaniya, which fundamentally were lectures delivered by scholars from around the Muslim world, right? In the presence of the king, you know, delivered to the king. And of course, in his presence, they would televise every single night in Ramadan, there would be a different scholar speaking. So that Khalid had been invited to that multiple times. And so he developed some relationships. So he wrote me a letter. He told me to visit Morocco, just to be certain. So I visited, I did it, did, went to, took a visit in the summer of 1995 for about two weeks. Uh, so I traveled around a few different cities. I visited the, the schools, which potentially I would go to. Of course, I my heart was, you know, I was, I was wanted to go to Qatarayin, even though some of the Moroccans wanted to me go to other places. <laughs> but um, you know, but eventually I decided okay, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Qatarayin. Uh, I visited the general secretary of the Ministry of Islamic Affairs with a letter from Dr. Khalid Benkishib, basically asking them to allow me to come study there. And they accepted the request and then told me to return in the fall and then I would be a student. Right? So pretty much uh, happened that way. Although uh, they didn't officially register me as a student until January of 1996, uh, which I think, I'm sorry, this I'm actually getting my years wrong. So 1997 is when I started. So it's so on the summer of 1997 is when I went, right? Went to in the summer of 97. They registered me as a student in the January of 1998. And that was after that the had visited one more Ramadan. And when I told him they still haven't made me an official, an official student, you know, he spoke to the minister. And so he, and then they said, well, you know, that I should be officially registered as a student in the university. And I think the reasons that they hesitated was that they probably thought that probably would drop out or maybe couldn't keep up with the work. You know, so alhamdulillah, you know, it worked out. So you're the, well, I, Islamically, Sherman and Amina were a scholarly generation ahead of me. I was still in medicine, but coming behind them, then you're after me. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah. I know that that feeling of um, hmm, I'm, I'm <laughs> Temple University. I mean, they sent me the other way uh, toward the Sudan. But for me, the program was <laughs> very difficult. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I, I, I was quitting every other week. Mm-hmm. All right. uh, deciding, uh, you know, somebody could tell me about it at a later time but like you i think that that is the kind of almost the story of many of us somebody tells you this one day somebody tells you something else the next day Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're female add a day in between you know they let you go another day Mm -hmm. but i have been really both excited and intrigued, sometimes curious mm-hmm. about your trip to Zaytuna. I mean, I know Hamza, I know Zay, and I said, oh, how did he get there? So tell us about Zaytuna. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's an interesting story, too. After coming home in 2002, I became a chaplain in the um, state correctional facility uh, in Chester, Pennsylvania. I became a full-time Islamic chaplain there. So during my fifth year in, in working there, I started to develop a certain sense of boredom, I guess you would say. I felt that, I, that I've done as much as I could with a community behind bars Right at that point. So I started to look elsewhere. I was doing research. And I, I discovered while I was doing research overseas, because I was thinking about going back overseas for something, I, I discovered the Qatar Foundation. And when I looked at their website, I saw that Dr. Sherman Jackson was on the uh, the board uh, of, um, I can't remember, directors or trustees, I can't remember, but he was a board member of the Qatar Foundation. So I called Dr. Jackson. I was like, hey, well, are you looking for more people to employ? You know, I, I was wondering if perhaps... 
I could uh, go work for the Qatar Foundation. He didn't, he didn't respond right away. It took maybe two, three days or perhaps more than that later, right? But maybe two days after I attempted to call him, I received an email from Imam Zaid, Imam Zaid Shakar, inviting me to move to California for a couple of years. <laughs> because around this time, Zaid Tuna was searching for a, a, a campus, right? You know, and there were multiple uh, communities around the country appealing uh, or presenting proposals on having Zaytuna come move to their particular state. So at the time, Mamzay thought perhaps eventually we would end up on the East Coast. That didn't pan out, you know. So at any rate, so that that already, I didn't want to leave the East Coast to come to California, you know, but like you know, he said, two years, okay, no problem. You know, I'll think about it, you know. So we talked about some other details eventually. So I didn't decide right away. But then Dr. Jackson, perhaps the next day, called me back and he said to me, Hey, hey, what were you looking at? And so I told him, you know, that I was thinking about the Qatar Foundation, you know. So, and he pretty much told me that, you know, they were still in the process of trying to get their act together, you know. So he didn't think it was a good idea for me to try to go join, you know, the Qatar Foundation around that time. So, so it really made it easy for me to decide, okay, well, I'll go to Zaytuna, right? So I ended up moved here with my family, I think it's October of 2007. Right. And been here ever since. Jane. So I first came here. Uh, my title was uh, resident scholar. Then eventually I went back to school and I earned my MA in, in um, ethics and social theory and then my PhD in cultural and historical studies and religion. You know, then once Zaytuna uh, had begun, had become officially a college you know, now I'm <laughs> a professor. Right. So it wasn't my original intention. You know, so I always like to tell people. Uh, that I'm more of a uh, an accidental academic, right? You know, it's not so much. Uh, well, in some, in a lot of ways, I don't see myself as, as an academic, you know, because I don't really have a connection with the academy in the same way that a lot of other people do. I still don't understand a lot of things about the academy, but I have the the accolades, I guess you would say, right? <laughs> so I got the letters, and uh, you know, but I write, I guess you would say, with a different audience in mind most of the time than most academics. Okay. Well, let's turn to that. Let's talk about these writings. You have quite a few. Mm. I mean, you have a bunch of articles, mm-hmm. but let's, well, let's talk about this one book in particular. Okay. Mm-hmm. There is no male preference in Islamic law. Now, I'm not going to take you to task on it, I'm going to let you explain what you think you're saying. <laughs> right, right. Well, the the, author, the original author was Sheikh Mohammed Tawil of Morocco, uh, who died in 2015. May Allah be pleased with him. He was actually one of my teachers, and he was a, um, a very important scholar in Morocco at the time. He was, for all intents and purposes, he was one of the grand muftis of the country. He had written this book in the Arabic language, that there's no maleness or some some sometimes people I've seen one translation as there's no misogyny or there's no patriarchy in Islamic law. But I felt that the the, the true intent of the author was to express the idea that there is no male preference in Islamic law, meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he makes a distinction between a man and a woman in the law, it's not simply because this one is a man and this is a woman, or put it a, a, be- a better way, I guess you would say, it's not because he considers the man to be superior to the woman, and therefore he gives a man certain rights or privileges that he doesn't give to women in certain cases. But the reality is that there's privilege and rights on both sides. When Muslim scholars uh, going back to the Sahaba, right, the male and female scholars, right, among the Sahaba, when they interpreted the text, it wasn't based upon trying to win one for all men or win one for all women, right? It was fundamentally the uh, attempt to comply with the commandments of God according to the understanding that they had of the scripture and to promote those ideas, right? Not so much about Okay, we're a, a a category, a sort of a homogenous category of of people, uh, and 
we have to do all that we can to get uh, the upper hand uh, over the other group of people. It's rather we're all a community of people with different roles and different capacities, uh, different uh, gifts even, right? And working together, we're able to be a virtuous community and promote what God, the creator, right, wants us all to, to live by, right? So that's fundamentally what the message of that book is. Now, naturally, there are going to be some things in the book, right, uh, which they're going to rub the contemporary reader the wrong way because the author is not very apologetic about his support of traditional teachings, right, uh, which originate from the Hadith literature and those Hadith, which some Muslim, Muslim men and women, right, would classify as being misogynistic, mm-hmm. right, where his, his belief is that, you know, if the Prophet said it, then it is what it is. And if he gives an explanation, then we accept that explanation. But if he does not give an explanation, we still embrace it and we just comply. We hear and we obey. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but that so, in and of itself yeah. is a lesson. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to see the scholar in a context mm-hmm. and to say what is, you know, pushing him to yeah. to uh, translate or to give an opinion opinion on this, that, or the other. That is a lesson in itself that I don't think many in our community realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very difficult um, because we're all bombarded by these these new sort of you know liberal philosophies, progressive philosophies, and others, right? Some of it is conservative philosophies, well, some extreme aspects of those as well, right? Mm-hmm. But more so, the progressive philosophy is really overwhelm people across the planet, right? And of course, naturally, more than more 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 in certain places than in others, right? You know, we see a lot of resistance happening right now internationally. You see it, mm-hmm. resistance to progressive ideology in Russia, in China, in India, and, you know, the Muslim world, like Francis Qatar right now, which was happening with the, uh, the World Cup, right? You know, all the displays of, of pride in our Islamic tradition, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, listen, no, no, we reject progressive ideology, yeah. which I think is something that we should really take note of and, and, and celebrate that alhamdulillah that there are still people who have courage and they believe that this is going to lead us down the wrong track. But you know? I don't know that it's really progressive. I wouldn't apply the term progressive to it. It is well, their philosophy, you know. Oh, no, it it's is. Nothing it's progressive. It is moving. No need. It's Orwellian. It's an or- Orwellian term. Like progressive is an Orwellian ter- term, right? You know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it sounds, it's a good sounding term, but it means the opposite. It's regressive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Regressive, right? You know, you know, so it's, it's basically, I, I guess you say the, the, the main threat that exists against most people, if not all people today, is the threat of us losing faith. Yeah. Uh, in our creator, losing faith in our religion, right? Losing faith in basic human decency, human nature, right? There's an attack on all of those things right now today. To try to reintroduce a paradigm that once was dominant, right, uh, throughout the world, right, is a very difficult thing. You know, when we've accepted secularism, among other things, this idea that religion has to be kept in your private space that, you know, it's, it's what you think is what you think. You keep it in your head. You never say anything about it publicly mm-hmm. or that if you have a viewpoint which contravenes the uh, public morality, what is it, what the public determined to be moral, right, then you keep that to yourself, right? And if you were to express it, then yourself should be blacklisted. You should be canceled, right? So it's, there's a lot of there are a lot of problems, right, that, that we have right now. And, so I, and I think that there's a tendency uh, when we find Muslim scholars who support things that sound problematic right, from the Hadith literature, right, mm-hmm. is to assume that, oh, that this individual's motivation is to oppress and suppress women, right? Mm-hmm. Or this individual's motivation is to keep blacks down or whatever. Could you find, you know, anti-black hadiths or things like that as well? And I think that we should get away as much as possible from this, what I like to call 
one factor or a single factor causation, right? You know, this idea or a single uh, a single cause explanation for everything, right? Human beings are much more complicated than just their religious beliefs or their ideologies, or, you know, understand? So it's possible that an individual could be motivated motivated by faith. You know, you can say, okay, well, it, can be, it can be misguided faith. Sure, it can be misguided faith, but at least it's still a, a plausible explanation like why people believe what they believe is that i believe the prophet said this i believe you understand so as opposed to i hate women i think women should never have any power right therefore i'm going to use all means possible as a matter of fact i'm going to make up hadith that's going to <laughs> ensure that women uh, never have any authority to do anything right? now before i get i got two more things to bother you with i'm looking at this text that says a new political vision for Muslim Americans. Talk to me. All right. Yeah, that was something I wrote right before the elections in 2020, some months before the election of, um, of Biden. And fundamentally, what I was trying to do in that, in that piece was to offer some points of reflection for community, which would help us to make better decisions politically, right? Like, because the way I see it is that the current leaders, national leaders and otherwise, right, of our community who actually are very much wrapped up in politics today, that we're too, too much affected and motivated from my vantage point by uh, emotional appeals, right? In other words, they scare you into voting for this person. Or they make you not vote for that person. They make you hate, you know, the anger motivates you to not vote for that other person, you know, or they appeal to your desire in some, some fashion. Like, you know, they, you know, give you sort of, you know, extend an olive branch. And in this situation with Muslims, what the left did was they developed a much softer tone towards Muslims, right? After they saw that Trump was going to win, right? That Hillary was going to lose, right? Then all of a sudden, all of these people come out of the woodwork. Oh, Muslims are real Americans and we need to accept Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And because Muslims are so hungry for, I guess you'd say, a sense of acceptance, a sense of acceptance that we just simply sacrifice what was most important to us, you know, which is our religious um, morality that we sacrifice it and even started to advocate for other people's morality. And so basically I just tried to say, okay, well, okay, you might, like for instance, and, and I, and I didn't call people to vote for Trump. I just said that, you know, you, it's okay if you, that you think that it's correct to do so, but you should look at the evidence and you should base it upon on the, a track record or base it upon the experience that you've had and the believability of what people will do. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I say, okay, you, you don't have to vote. You can vote, you know, or not vote, right? If you choose a vote, then this, you know, no problem. If you choose not to vote, that's not a problem. If you choose to vote for Biden, then, you know, at least let it be rooted in some moral, let, let your own moral foundation be the basis of you voting for uh, Biden or anyone else, right? You know, and same thing for Trump, you know, and so you, you can hate Trump or let's say that, Let's say if it's true, for instance, that Trump doesn't like black people or Trump hates Muslim. For me, I feel that leadership should be the first group of people to say, listen, that is not sufficient reason for me not to vote for that particular individual. What matters is that this individual is going to give me what I need, or I believe that this person is going to give me what I need if I put them in office. Yeah, it shouldn't. It should be. It should matter less that this individual likes me or doesn't like me. But too often, you know, we make those decisions. We find out, oh, so and so. They say so and so doesn't like me, or so and so doesn't like this type of person, that type of person. And you're one of those type of people. How can you possibly vote for them? Say, well, is that the only reason that you can vote for someone? Right? I mean, it's the only reason that. I, I can vote for Obama is because he was black. Is the only reason that I can disagree with Obama is because. You know, he may be, let's say if he wasn't black, right, you know, so it's, it's superficiality, right, you know, and so, so, I, and I've said multiple occasions before that one of the worst things that's happened to the 
Western Muslim community, um, meaning in Europe and in uh, America, is we got involved into politics, right? That politics, it, it become too important for us, right? Because now is at the point that too many Muslims seem to believe that we're going to get a savior, a messiah in the political realm. Right. There are no messiahs, no saviors in the political realm. They're not going <laughs> to, you know, right. No, it's not going to happen. You're not going to find a perfect mm. candidate. Right? There's always going to be something wrong with the individual that you decide to vote for. But you should you should make sure that the individual that you vote for actually is going to protect your rights and your your moral sentiments. Right. And, and allow for you to advocate for that, you know. And so I don't think that Muslims have that opportunity uh, with their alliances uh, with the Democratic Party. Okay, I'm glad you explained that to me. Last but not least, I have a few moments left. And, you know, Jonathan Brown just came out with, what is it? Is there anti-Blackness in Islam? Blackness in or is Islam anti-Black? Something. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, oh, but I got one for you, the Negro and Arab Muslim consciousness. So I sent the cover of this book out to a whole bunch of people <laughs> because, you know, there needed to be a balance. You, you know what I'm saying? In the text, what he's saying is that there were all these people trying to convince Arabs they should not be racist. And I'm saying, but there's no distinction. Which Arabs are you talking about? Yeah, right. Right. Mm -hmm. But even further than that, there have been so many people. Abu Jayas is nowhere in there. You know, there's so many people right. who have written loads on the subject, but they're kind of absent, but that's neither here nor there. Tell me about the Negro and Arab Muslim consciousness. Right. So this book uh, actually is a uh, a version of my dissertation, my PhD dissertation, which originally I entitled The Negro and Afro-Arabian Muslim Consciousness. And I changed it to uh, The Negro and Arab Muslim Consciousness because I talk more about Arab consciousness as opposed to the Afro-Arab, right? Um, unless we say that speaking about scholars from Egypt is an example of an Arab, an Afro-Arab. Mm -hmm. right? But, um, of course, there's, uh, you know, I spoke about, I uh, quoted scholars from Sudan uh, in the book as well. Right. But this particular book ventures into a, a few different areas. One, uh, the question of what is the Negro right? and what is meant by the Negro and what did medieval writers mean by Negro, right, when they said it. So in the Arabic language, the, the word which is commonly Translated as Negro is the word Zunj. Uh, and the Zunj were the people of East Africa, which was most likely uh, from the area of Tanzania and um, Zanzibar. Right? Mm -hmm. And when you read some of the medieval Muslim or Arab writers, such as Mas'udi, uh, even Ibn Khaldun as well, right? He was later, Ibn Khaldun was later to Mas'udi, right? And they speak about the Zunj. They clearly make a distinction between them and other Blacks. Right. So the Zanj and they talk about the Zabish, they talk about the Habasha, the Abyssinians. Right. They make a clear distinction between them. And in the English language, even into, at the, into the turn of the 20th century, there is still this distinction being made between what we call Negro and uh, other blacks or other Africans. Right. You know, they made distinction between Nubians, between the Moors, they did the Kushites, the Hamites. Right. And then we had the Negroes. Right. So the Negroes, there was a term utilized to refer to those who were looked upon as being backwards. Right. They were the backwards from the sub-Saharan African tribes. And fundamentally, what I attempted to do in the book is to try to highlight how when most Arab scholars spoke about the Negro or the Zunj right, in particular, that they meant something very specific. But I take, try to take a step further, and I, I, I try to show as well that how the closer you become, the closer you come to the uh, the European European Enlightenment period, is when you start to see even Arab scholars, Arab Muslim scholars, um, projecting backwards. You know some of the same negative sentiments that Europeans 
held about Blacks as well. Now, ultimately, the goal was, I would say, as I, I think I said in the introduction, was to humanize the scholar. And by humanize, what I meant is to acknowledge human frailty in people. Scholars are the heirs of the prophets, but they're still not prophets, right? You understand? So, so by understanding that, it is important to not make the mistake of, of uncritically embracing every single word that comes out of the, of the mouth of a given scholar, right? You can have reverence, you can still revere them and respect them and acknowledge and embrace many opinions, but it's like, listen, they were still human beings. And sometimes they were affected by their societies and their cultural proclivities and, and, and the different paradigms that uh, and stereotypes that they had about other peoples, right? You know, but much of the negative, the viewpoints that were held by Arabs against Africans, Africans reciprocated that as well, right? And I think that this is one thing I, perhaps I didn't highlight it enough in the book, you know, we have to understand that that world was different. It was, you know, the Africans didn't see, as you know this, of course, is that the Africans didn't see themselves as a homogenous race, right? It wasn't like, you know, Africans in Sudan, that they saw themselves, we're all with, with, with our brothers in Senegal. They're like, yeah, we're all the same people. We're all, no, we're not. Right? They're not the same tribe. We're not the same people, right? So all outsiders receive the cold shoulder, right, to a certain extent, right? So you can find negative things said by Arabs against Blacks, but you also can find some negative things said by Blacks against Arabs. So, for instance, like one example of this, if you read, for instance, Ajahil's, uh in his uh, book about uh, the Fakhr Sudan al Bidan, the boast of the Blacks over the Whites, he mentions a story about a debate between an African and, and the, an Arab man, you know, where they're exchanging slights, whether the Arabs attacks the African man and the African man responds, you know, to the Arab, you know, yeah, well, your mother was a goat, right? You know, in other words, suggesting that this individual, uh, his father was, was involved in bestiality because there were certain Arab tribes who were known to be to, to do bestiality, you know, for bestiality. And so, in other words, the slights were exchanged back and forth. And so, in other words, the only reason, uh, or blackness itself, is not a sufficient reason for people to discriminate against others. You know, uh, and blackness alone is not sufficient reason for others to embrace those others as their brethren. Right at the same time, so 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 the Arabs, if you saw discrimination, you know, and in particular going back to the time of the Prophet most of that was due to the fact uh, of two fundamental characteristics. You know, one was that these individuals were non-Arab, and two, they were former slaves. So it's a combination of two things, right? So it's class and it's race, right, together. But it's not color, because there are many, many Arabs, as you mentioned, as you highlight, if anything, the, most, the majority of the Arabs themselves were, were brown, Right. They were brown people. Right. If not black. Right. Many of them were black, you know, but the majority of them are light, light brown right? people. So and so the prophet, his color was actually an anomaly. Right. Was anomalous. Right. He was a lighter colored Arab. Right. But the vast majority of them, clearly, when you read the, the words of the lexicographers and their descriptions of the Arabs, it's very clear that they didn't identify. They were not a white race. Right. But they also weren't a black race. Right. You know, which would put them in the category of the African. Right? So uh, even though um, uh, one of the uh, the authors of one of the uh, books on the history of Sudan, Tariq Sudan, there are two popular ones. I can't remember one of them. He actually says places the Arabs, makes the Arabs a subcategory of African. Right. So which really is, hey, well, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's possible. I I. We kind of hate to go. I think I will get you on another format, but I want you to tell those who listen to this podcast because they won't see us, they'll just hear the podcast where they can. What is the URL for the website? I'm sure they will want to get in contact with you. And this has been such a joy. Much too short a time. <laughs> right. And you don't talk to me often enough, but <laughs> um, it that, has man. really <laughs> been a lesson. 
Yeah, but the the website uh, you know is uh, binhamidali.com, uh, B-I-N-H-A-M-I-D-A-L-I.com, uh, which is my website, which showcases most of my, or I'd say the most important work that I, I, I've done. But then you also can go to lampostedu.org, L-A-M-P-P-O-S-T-E-D-U.org, which is um, my organizational website, Lampost Education Initiative, where you can find a lot of material there as well. But if you want just something specifically related to my own intellectual contributions, you go to benhamidadi.com. You know, but uh, definitely appreciate. Um, can you repeat that thing about Lampost? Yes, uh, Lampost, the, uh, the website address is uh, L-A-M-P-P-O-S-T-E-D-U.org. Um, Lampost Education Initiative, which is the broader organizational website. On that website, we showcase more than just me. Uh, there are uh, other people. We have, uh, of course, our publications, our classes online and on site. And then also we try to serve as a platform for showcasing American voices or voices of people we feel should be listened to, uh, such as Dr. Amina McLeod, Right. <laughs> the people, you know, so if you want to just get a broader overview of the efforts that I've been involved in, uh, you can go to Lampos uh, Education uh, Initiative website. But if you want something specific, a uh, depository of information which originates only from me, you can go to benhamidari.com and you can do that as well, inshallah. This has been uh, one of those runaway hours. Yeah. And I will be back. Please give my salams to your family. And we at Maidan and George Mason and Sabello and the community appreciate you. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Appreciate you as well. <laughs>